Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Now, I don't know about you, Sarah, but most of my New Year's resolutions were flung out of the window in mid-January. So chocolate, cheese and alcohol are back in the house. And I spent more time in the pub rather than the gym, I'm afraid, over the weekend. But we have just had another chance to renew those commitments to healthier living because we've just passed the the start of the Chinese New Year, haven't we? We have, although to be fair, Chinese New Year is is celebrated with a banquet in our house, which probably isn't the healthiest start. Um, But this is the year of the tiger. Um, So I was born in the year of the tiger, so I'm always keen to believe the best things come from these years. And as, as tigers are supposed to be up for a challenge. So I'm delighted we're tackling a really huge topic in this podcast this time. Yes, we certainly are. In this episode, we're focusing on China, the world's second largest economy and the opportunities and challenges the greater China region presents for companies and investors. In an episode, we're calling China in your plans. So we're going to find out firsthand what it's like doing business in the country with Carl Hunter, the chairman of manufacturing company Coltraco Ultrasonics, which manufactures testing and monitoring systems. Hello, Carl. So as part of your export innovation strategy, I hear China is a key market. So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about your experiences. It's a delight to be here. And yes, China's a, a key market, really, in our overall Asia strategy. Yes, we'll look forward to finding out more later in the podcast. We'll also chat to Sophie Lundyates, who's our senior equity analyst at HL, who's been delving into the prospects for some big names listed on the stock market when it comes to importing from and exporting to China. And we'll hear from our head of investment analysis and research, Emma Wall, who's been talking to Dale Nichols, manager of the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust. But before we get stuck into the Chinese market, we start a bit closer to home, looking at the cost of living crisis. So we've had a fair bit of news on this front, both from an eye-watering 54% rise in the energy price cap in April and a rise in interest rates. Those homeowners who are on variable rates that are linked to the Bank of England base rate will see their monthly payments rise again as the Bank of England raised rates to 0.5%. So the good news is that most of us are protected because most of us have a fixed rate mortgage. Currently, about three quarters of the market is fixed. And for the past few years, those taking on new variable mortgages have been really few and far between. So the pain won't be immediate for everyone. Again, on the flip side, if the rates keep going up over the rest of 2022, it means despite the Bank of England's plan to sort of increase things generally and gradually over time, actually what's going to happen is when you come to remortgage, you'll see a real step up in your monthly payments. Yes, but this is still ultra low by historic standards, isn't it? 30 years ago, the base rate was at 10%. Then, of course, a succession of crises led to this era of ultra cheap money. First the financial crisis, then after the vote for Brexit, and then finally the pandemic, which saw rates hit a record low of 0.1%. Yes, and the old rule of, you know, what goes down must go up applies. So it was always a question of when they'd rise rather than if. So the question now on people's minds is where they're going to go from here. There's a risk that the lifting of the energy price cap will cause a big rise in inflation in April, which might spark another rate rise. Yes, and it's also worth looking at the labour market because it's not just that the jobs market is booming with vacancies at record levels of 1.2 million. Wages are also rising. They may not be as fast as the headline inflation rate, which doesn't make people feel better off, but take-home pay has accelerated. 
And the Bank of England's now predicting inflation is going to hit 7.25% in April, which is really different to the headline rate of inflation reported in China. Yeah, in China, the rate of inflation is actually falling. In December, prices were rising 1.5% year on year, whereas in November, they're increasing by 2.3% year on year. Now, this is partly because of the reimposition of lockdown measures in some regions as Omicron spread, but also efforts the government has made in securing supplies of popular products like pork, which had seen prices rise really sharply. And while other central banks are set to raise rates further, China's actually cutting rates to try and stimulate the economy. So China's growth slowed to 4%, which is the lowest rate in 18 months during the last three months. And challenges have been mounting. So it's not only the fresh restrictions being imposed that's putting the brakes on growth. Yes, there's been a wave of defaults across the property sector linked to the woes of the giant group Evergrande, which is undergoing what is likely to be the biggest restructuring in Chinese history. Now, it's led to prize assets in Evergrande's empire being seized by creditors and concerns really are ongoing about what other ripple effects there will be right across the economy. So the problems in the property sector owe a great deal to China's common prosperity agenda. So that aims to reduce inequality and narrow the gap between rich and poor. And in order to do so, it's been tackling the property sector because rising house prices were a major source of inequality. So it's clamped down on borrowing both within the sector and for households hoping to buy. And as a result, it's precipitated a crisis in real estate. And it's unlikely to be the end of the policy initiatives, which could cause real disruption in the short term. So this happened last when the authorities put the brakes on private education companies. So the idea was to help bridge the gap between those families who could afford extra tuition and those who couldn't. But it also meant that education companies could no longer make profits. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because despite all of these short term issues, really, the region is often deemed the future engine of global growth. China made up 15% of the broader emerging stock market back in 2008, but it's since reached around one third. And a catalyst of this change has been the gradual opening up of China's stock markets to foreign investors. And all of this has meant an increasing number of China-focused funds have launched over the past decade. And many investors have upped their allocations to the world's most populous country. But what is it like doing business right now, at least with so many potential pressures weighing on the economy? Well, it's time to bring back in Carl Hunter, the chairman of manufacturing company Coltreco Ultrasonics. So, Carl, how long have you been exporting to China? Broadly, uh, just in excess of 20 years. And it's a it's a key part of our overall export strategy to Asia. And we export probably 40 percent of our advanced manufacturing to Asia Pacific generally. And China's a key part of that. Tell me, where are your products used? Across a variety of high hazard market sectors, such as shipping, offshore wind, offshore oil and gas, nuclear power, conventional power, uh, electricity grid systems, data centres. And we are very proud of the work that we do with the uh, Royal Navy, particularly in the fields of damage control. And are you seeing that your products become increasingly in demand across Greater China? In what areas of uh, Greater China do you do the most business? For me, China has become in my mind two countries in trading terms. You have that part of the economy that is going for what I think President Xi calls dual circulation, very much wedded to Chinese state-owned providers. And then you have the more global outward-looking companies that are tying themselves to Western standards. So for me, my markets are much more specific 
to those companies that are outward looking than those that are inward looking. And are you seeing or have you seen over the past few years an increase in red tape or requirements needed by authorities compared to other markets? Uh, given, for example, you know, we've highlighted already some of the extra requirements put on certain sectors. We have and we haven't. What, what we've seen is is different cycles in different ways. So we've seen China reach out to try to form sensible partnerships and and then we've seen others which seem slightly more one-sided we've seen a very powerful anti-corruption drive a few years ago that was very effective in controlling business from the propriety and ethics perspective and then we've seen that dampen in the last couple of years so for me it's been a cyclical approach to how china wishes to engage in international trade with the constant backdrop of course of investments in sensitive sectors and and behind that the maritime and indeed the land belt and road initiative which you know sometimes can appear an attempt to create an alternative trading system which is counterproductive in terms of its integration into the global trading community largely speaking because the ports of the world exist for geographical reasons and trying to create something that's alternative to them except in a digital space seems to me to offer more challenge than opportunity. It must be such a challenge when uh, the rules and regulations do go in this kind of circular uh, movement, waxing and waning. How do you deal with that? For UK business as a whole to, to become, let's say, better, faster, cheaper in global markets, people often forget that from the manufacturing perspective and the regulatory perspective in services, One has to not only cope with one's own national standards to succeed in one's own domestic markets, but to succeed in overseas export markets, one has to succeed in their certification regimes as well. China is driving hard to impose its own standards. The problem is that conflicts with the origins of, let's say, UK standards, which are heavily predicated on engineering and uh, technical and safety sanity overall, and are not being used to advantage British trade. They're being designed to make for a, a safer world. So if China wishes to come in and influence its own certification, it may well enhance the opportunities for domestic manufacturers who are selling to state-owned companies in China. But it's less clear to me how that is going to a help them uh, integrate with the global trading system overall. So have you, have you seen any increased competition from Chinese competitors? Uh, we, we have indeed. We've seen a lot of it. Sadly, I see very little invention and I see a lot of replication. You cannot work in high hazard, asset intense market sectors like the nuclear industry or shipping or um, advanced warship design. You cannot do that where bottom pricing is your key determinant of your design. To design excellence needs to be almost an example of practical scholarship in advanced manufacturing terms. And if you match advanced manufacturing to high exporting as we do, then the basis of that is doing truthful science that is almost at a scholarship level academically, and then manufacturing that at a level of equivalence to what I call practical scholarship. You're not going to make a better world 
if you don't do your best. For China to play its fulsome part in international trade as a reliable partner, it has to appreciate that taking a concept and trying to make it just as cheap as it can is not the way to make a better world. All that will do is force companies like us to make our instruments or systems better than they've ever been before. So it seems to me you've had your fair share of intellectual property challenges, but as a result, you've become more agile. We're actually one of the very few British companies to have taken four intellectual property theft cases and succeeded in the Beijing courts. I was absolutely astonished, and I have to give credit here to the Beijing courts for their transparency and openness. We won two and lost two in the the first year. We went back on appeal six months later. Uh, due to an amazing lady uh, lawyer, I have to say, a Chinese lawyer. And a year later, we won those two as well. That gave me personally tremendous hope that the happy experiences I've had traveling across major Chinese cities over 20 years, that really there is hope that despite the criticisms I make, I also can, can point to some outstanding people who want China to be in the right place in the right world that we all want really. And of course, sort of more recently, and I know one of the other challenges um, as a working in China is, is the supply chain issues. So have you, have you come across anything like this, like things like, you know, port snarl-ups? It's not the port snarl-ups that have worried me, because we took a decision way back on the 11th of March 2020 to shift entirely out of ships to freight our, our exports and to go by air. The snarl-ups are in a different way. COVID-19 has hit the world economy so if you imagine a static piece of metal and, take, and you've taken an enormous mallet to it, the reverberations to that are unforeseen. The reverberations of that shock that happened in March 2020 are still being felt. So for planning purposes, going back to April to May in 2020, we were forecasting that the global markets themselves and the global supply chains are going to remain in a state of considerable disturbance for yet another year, possibly December 22 earliest. That means that components, for instance, that were on overnight availability are now on 64-week lead times. That's therefore, for me, not a shipping problem. It's a global supply chain one. And do you think that's why we're seeing more companies switch to onshoring, bringing manufacturing closer to home rather than looking at cheaper manufacturing sites overseas, in particular in China? I think you've asked one of the most fascinating questions I've been asked all year. If we keep thinking that we will get better by just seeking the cheapest manufacturing place on Earth, what we seem to be forgetting is that we're also then accessing the cheapest workers on Earth. And yet, surely we realise that the value of a human being is higher than the lowest labour rate that we can find for it. So for me, there's an issue of reshoring for strategic purposes, as since trade and finance are now at the heart of British foreign policy, for instance, in the integrated review of foreign policy published last year, it seems to me this is an extraordinary opportunity of hope, particularly for young people, but for any age of people in our country who wish to change careers, because this is the moment to realise that your roots in that industrial revolution, when you match science to reaching global markets by making things that were excellent, this is a moment for us to do it all again. So reshoring, yes, but for a slightly nuanced set of reasons, in addition to your fine point that you make.
very positive note to finish there with. But I mean, in general, can you tell us how optimistic you are about growth opportunities in China? I am optimistic, but I, I have to say that I'm more optimistic about the wider Asia Pacific region now. In the wider Asia Pacific region, we have a host of just dynamic, growth-filled companies that really want to engage with the United Kingdom and the US um, at a level I've I've never seen in thirty years of doing business. But to your question specifically, of course, we wish to continue to engage with China. All we desire is a slightly more level playing field in relation to how we compete there. I really, really do encourage them to go back to that anti-corruption um, drive that was so successful a couple of years ago, because that's the real China, not the one that can sometimes allow its players to operate in alternative ways. So yes, I'm, I'm optimistic overall, but I, I am very aware that it's not just a competitive landscape now. It's a contested landscape. And where I'm talking about that is in the rules-based international order that cascades all the way through to business rules and uh, protocols. It really has been fascinating, Carl, and it'd be really interesting as well to see how all of these themes develop over the next few years. So thanks very much. You have delighted me all. So, you know, as to your New Year's resolutions... Don't be too harsh on yourself. Take care, everybody. It's very, very lovely to talk to you all. Well, thank you, Carl. It's really been fascinating to have your insights. And thanks for those best wishes. Let me bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now, our senior equity analyst, who's going to delve deep into some of the big issues in the market at the moment, particularly with the supply chain and the interruptions caused by the pandemic. These have all had really far-reaching implications, as we've heard from Carl, haven't they? It really has. And, you know, we can't talk about Asian supply chains and not talk about Apple, which for me is the obvious one to talk about here. So unlike a lot of tech companies, which are essentially software based, you think of you know, Microsoft and Amazon's growing web services division, things like that. Netflix is another one. Apple is really heavily reliant on physical products. So that means that supply chains are far more important because there's a lot of physical components. Um, and its supply chains are predominantly reliant on Asia, meaning that any disruption in that region in, in particular, especially China, will have an effect on, on its ability to deliver. Now, I do have to say that its latest set of results from, from the end of January show that it's navigating the worldwide supply chain disruption incredibly well, um, with record sales and profits. You know, it managed about $124 billion in quarterly net sales, which is frankly insane levels. So it's hard to wrap your head around that. But those impressive results actually allowed it to shrug off some of the, the negative tech sentiment that's been, you know, absolutely just ripping through markets, particularly the, the Nasdaq. And the initial reaction to Apple's results um, at the beginning of this month, or rather the end of end of January rather, saw the shares rise pretty substantially. Now of course it's an incredibly dynamic situation at the moment. I think that there could be some further pain there and a more abrupt tilt away from growth stocks would likely hurt Apple in in the short run. But when we're talking about its ability to manage supply chains in particular, that is absolutely fundamental for Apple because its operating model relies on an incredibly short production cycle. So as competition in the hardware space, so by that I mean its laptops, its phones, its accessories, um, it's so competitive out there at the moment. And, and keeping Apple's new models flying off the shelves relies on it making customers feel like they absolutely have to have the latest model. This is working for now, as I said, no, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and a driving force of success is that you've guessed it in this episode is China. So net sales in that region rose over 20% last quarter. And, and that is a huge area of, of growth potential. 
if it can keep taking on rivals in the region. Now, we've talked already in this podcast about China's growth and the slowing of it recently. And commodities are, of course, extremely sensitive to that, aren't they? They absolutely are. And this next stock, I'm not going to harp on about it too much because I covered it a few episodes back when we were talking about our five shares to watch for the year. Um, but we, we really can't talk about China and, and demand and supply without talking about commodities. So Anglo-American is who I'm talking about here. It's a, a giant miner um, and it's responsible for industrial materials, including things like iron ore and coal. So unsurprisingly, when global economies are growing, demand for those materials goes through the roof. So China has a direct impact on the likes of Anglo, because as we all know, it's a rapidly growing region. Um, The thing that I like in particular about Anglo, though, is that it also has exposure to some consumer, i.e. non-government reliant demand materials like copper and and some others. So that adds a little bit of a buffer when industrial demand isn't, isn't flying so high. With that said, I am mindful that miners are benefiting from really high material prices at the moment. And that is great news for the likes of miners. But investors should be mindful that commodity prices are cyclical. And that means they move a lot and they go up and down with the wider economy. I suppose in many ways, uh, it's a similar situation with consumer goods, which can fluctuate depending on consumer sentiment. And is that true, for example, um, when we're talking about China? So we absolutely associate talking about China with booming demand. But there are some areas where squeezing growth out of the Chinese market is a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, Carl was touching on that, albeit for a very different product base. KitKat maker Nestle relies on China as an important pillar of its Asia, Oceania and Africa division, um, which accounted for just over um, 15 billion Swiss francs um, in the first nine months of the financial year for Nestle. But growth is being held back by its infant nutrition. So think things like formula in China. A really large reason for that is actually lower birth rates in the context of the pandemic. So on a longer term note, the region remains a good growth lever, especially when you consider brands like Purina Pet Care, which is doing really well. Interesting, the pet boom is uh, taking place all the way around the world, it seems at the moment. I was certainly one of the, uh, the people that decided to get a dog during lockdown. And are you enjoying it? Keeping the vets busy? I love him to pieces, but it's, it's not easy. And yeah, the vet bills are, uh, are enormous. Yes, let's not talk about vet spills. I think we've all been there. So thanks, Sophie. And now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, who's our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she's been speaking to Dale Nichols, who's manager of the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust. Hi, Dale. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Happy Lunar Year to you. Now, you're speaking to us from Asia, where markets have been interesting for the last 12 months due to various headwinds. I thought we could start by kind of recapping on on how things were in the last 12 months, because unlike areas such as the US and and a number of major markets in the West, Asian markets, in particular China, didn't perform as well in the last 12 months, did they? No, absolutely. Huge divergence, really, particularly in China. What were the causes of that? Clearly sort of divergent policy. I don't think there's been as sort of much economic stimulus is one factor. But I think, you know, the bigger factor really is around regulation. So we've had, you know, a lot of new regulation that's that's come in. I sort of put it into three broad buckets, the anti-competitive or antitrust type regulation, particularly focused on the big internet platforms, new rules around data, uh, particularly sort of security and privacy. Some elements of that, I think, sort of 
touching on data sovereignty as well. And then the other areas that are really focused on dealing with, you know, increasing social inequality. So you may have heard about the three mountains focused on property, education and healthcare. And how do you, as a professional investor, unpick what that means for individual equities? Because presumably you're able to see through some of this and still find some good opportunities within the market, but it must be tough. There's a couple of, of key things. One is to you know, really keep the long-term view. And I say that, I say looking back you know, and looking forward. So looking back, we've definitely had these regulatory waves before, uh, but this is clearly sort of the, the deepest and longest uh, that we've had. Um, It seems like it's waning somewhat when we sort of, you know, think about what could come next. It seems like the noise we hear of late is more about the implementation of sort of past draft policies. Um, And again, we think about what could come next. It's it's hard to imagine the next sort of six months being as intense as the last sort of six to 12. We see some elements, potentially more control around entertainment content, particularly a little bit more regulation, maybe on tertiary education. But again, it's sort of hard to imagine it being as intense. And again, when we're focusing on the long term, you know, the government still has pretty you know, ambitious goals around economic development and sort of innovation in general. So, you know, to achieve those goals, you definitely need a, a sort of a strong private sector. As per previous cycles, we think there's a good chance that, you know, things will be less intense uh, going forward. And so actually, from a risk reward perspective for stocks, things are stacking up pretty well with still, I think, quite a bit of fear out there um, driving stocks down. And we've got sort of really significant discounts in China you know, versus global peers. And maybe the final point on regulation, a lot of this, you know, the regulation that we're seeing is dealing with challenges that you know, are facing many countries globally, areas like social inequality, reigning in big tech, data control and dealing with data security and privacy. But you know, obviously in China, they can act pretty swiftly. So the fact that a lot of that is, you know, hopefully behind us, I think, sets us up reasonably well from a risk-reward perspective when, we, when we're looking at markets. And we, of course, cannot have a fund manager conversation, regardless who I'm talking to, if they invest in the US, in the UK, in, in Asia, in Latin America, we've got to have the COVID conversation because the way that each government and each region has responded to COVID in the restrictions that they've implemented has obviously affected the economy and indeed the stock market. So what is the current policy in China and how is that impacting investment opportunities? Yeah, it clearly is an issue and I think it has definitely impacted growth, particularly the second half half last year. And as you know, the policy in China is one of zero tolerance. So when you do see a flare up, no matter how small it is, there is a, you know, a lockdown in that area. And that clearly impacts growth. The movement in PMIs that you've seen really over the last 12 months, or the, the variability on that, I think, in many cases reflects the sort of the lockdowns that we've seen. Obviously, you've heard about you know, what's happened in Xi'an and places like Tianjin as well. So I would still cite that policy as a risk factor in terms of growth looking, looking forward. It's hard to see a really strong recovery. This can limit growth somewhat. Having said all that, I think there's been a clear policy change from the Central Economic Work Conference in, in December that's really focused on growth. So I think you'll see definitely see more stimulus going forward. We've already seen some move on the monetary side in terms of cutting prime rates, um, cutting reserve rate requirements. I think you'll see more of that as well, which, which is obviously interesting in a global context when you're seeing uh, a lot of other economies actually tighten. So I think that divergence is interesting for markets as well, even with you know potentially growth in general, but it'll be tough to surprise on the upside. But 
um, I think, you know, in terms of have increased stimulus in government policy that's supportive, I think that could be a positive for markets. And, and presumably also, let's not forget, when the market is depressed, that presents buying opportunities for someone like you who is focused on the long term, because obviously nothing is guaranteed. But for a contrarian investor, they look for these pullbacks. They, you know, they look for these moments when the market is depressed. Absolutely. Like I said, particularly those areas that have been, you know, the real focus as part of regulation that have been significantly sold off. So, you know, when you look at the market overall, um, its valuation to, you know, obviously, so the US is where we look mostly when we're doing that comparison, um, sort of market valuations, that gap in valuation is the widest it's really been in some time. But if you think about the sectors that have been in focus, like, like you know, particularly the tech sector, you've got really, really wide, wide gaps there. Um, if you think about sort of, you know, the bigger tech companies in China relative to their global peers, you're looking at you know, in some cases, 70, 80% type discounts. So that's where I think things have opened up the most. And yeah, not surprisingly, that's probably the areas that I'm spending the most time on, just from a risk reward perspective. Those areas that are probably more in, in some ways, the eye of the storm are presenting the most, the most opportunities. So definitely, you know, areas like tech, even property. And obviously, that's an area that's that's under pressure as well. And I think driving part of the slowdown that we saw towards the end of, end of last year. And obviously, we're in a process now where we're you know, dealing with the likes of Evergrande. That's creating a lot of a lot of negative sentiment. This is an area that had seen tightening uh, policy really over the past couple of years. So there's a lot of policy scope to loosen. And I think there'll be increasing incentives to do that, which, which again, should be positive uh, for the stocks in that space. Dale, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the holiday. Thanks, Emma. Good to chat. So that was Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, talking to Dale Nichols, Manager of the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust. Now, please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. So Susanna tells me she's been trawling through the weird and wonderful world of international trade and putting together more of her impressively difficult questions on imports and exports. I have to say, unless it's about the impressive level of shopping my kids do in Alibaba, I might not get a great result here. (laughs) I'm afraid that is not on the list, but good luck anyway. Okay, Sarah, your first question is about exports from the UK. There are five categories where the UK is the biggest exporter in the world, but which of these are real? And which one is a red herring? Is it hard liquor, antiques, brochures or tartan? <laughs> oh, blimey. Well, the, the whiskey market makes liquor fairly lightly. And I suppose we've, well, we've all been clearing out our lofts fast enough to compete on the antiques front. But I'm really not sure about the other two. I mean, who on earth would be exporting either in major quantities? So I'm just going to say brochures is the red herring. I'm afraid it isn't. We are apparently big in the brochures world and export $2.45 billion worth of them. Can you believe it? Now, the other two the UK leads in is stainless steel ingots and railroad ties. So tartan, in fact, was your red herring. It's always a red herring in my wardrobe, I can tell you. Never know when to wear it. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) next one. Sticking with the UK. Crude petroleum is among the top five imports by value and it's in the top five exports too. But do you think we import more or export more of it? Surely even I should be able to get this right, given I've got a 50-50 chance. 
So I'm going to toss a coin. It feels like maybe we import more. And you're right. We import $23.3 billion worth and export 22.6 billion. So it's finely balanced, but definitely tipped in your favour. So you have one there. Okay. Now, after crew petroleum, cars are the second most traded product in the world. And you probably won't be surprised to hear that the top exporter is Germany. Second is Japan. Third is the US. But which country is fourth? Oh, gosh, you've named all the ones that spring to mind. I don't suppose it's the UK, is it? No, certainly, certainly not. Certainly not actually after last year when far, far fewer cars rolled off the production line. No, it's Mexico and then Canada. The UK was actually the third biggest importer of cars after the US and Germany. Okay, now I've got a, a slight change for you, Sarah. We've got a quick fire question round. I can get them wrong faster. <laughs> so I'll give you a type of food and you've got to tell me the world's biggest exporter. So first, yogurt. <laughs> I have no idea. It feels like it should be Scandinavian. So I don't know, Sweden. No, it's Germany. So cars and yogurt. There we are. There you have it. Germany actually exports more than a quarter of all yogurt. Sweden doesn't make the top 10, but the UK is at number eight. Next, spinach. Oh, you've got all the really glamorous foodstuffs. Um, so that's got to be somewhere really big with a massive agricultural sector. So I'm going to say Brazil. No, it's the US, the home of Popeye, of course, which produces a quarter of all spinach for export. Brazil isn't on the list, but the UK is number 14. So there you have it. And finally, turkey meat. Oh, this, this feels like it should be the US. Although really every part of me wants to guess at turkey. No, it's not Turkey. It's not the US. It's not Turkey. It's Poland, which produces more than a quarter of all turkey meat for export. The UK comes in at number 11. <laughs> Although I imagine we're probably the top exporter of those weird breaded turkey products that my kids are completely obsessed with. At the moment, we just have to have turkey in the shape of dinosaurs, apparently. Well, we got uh, an air fryer at Christmas time for our kitchen and literally they're cooking everything you could possibly think of in there. But uh, certainly sounds like you've really embraced healthy eating this year. I know we haven't. But I'm, I'm afraid, Sarah, your food knowledge let you down and it is yet another quiz where you managed one correct answer. But I suppose it's better than nothing. Yeah, I'll, I'll take one. That's pretty good for me. They were pretty hard. That's all from us this time. But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 4th of February and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. And past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. And no view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment. And investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Carl, Sophie, Emma and Dale, and our producer, Elizabeth Hudson. And do please let us know what you think about this podcast. And remember to subscribe 
so you can get a fresh new episode into your inbox whenever it's ready.